All right, we're here in Chicago at the festive Randolph Street Market, and this is our second year of our roundtable, and we have some great guests here today, as last year, and we're starting out with the promoter of the show, Sally Schwartz, Harry Rinker, Al Baghdad, Sue Klein Baghdad, Danielle Arnett, Nina Ivan. Yes, and we're going to just, I'm going to ask each person on this panel, uh, we had a blast last year and we're going to have fun this year, um, what got them interested in the antique business in the first place, in about a minute each, something like that. Um, hi, this is Sally, and I got into the antiquing business because my grandparents and my parents loved old things and also didn't like to replace things and kept everything, and everybody's very sentimental. I started collecting cigarette lighters because when my grandparents died, I'd always noticed these big, ornate musical things on their coffee tables, and I just fell in love with them, and then I had something to do, and I'd start going to antique markets. Then I became a party decorator, and I used to decorate with theme props from various period so that's how I got into it and I'm still doing it and I'm Mary Rinker a dedicated accumulator but uh, I got into this business because I didn't want to work for a living because it's fun and if it's fun it's not work and I've had a great time uh, throughout this thing I mean when people normally ask me how did I get started I always say well I still have the bassinet they brought me home from the hospital with and the crib I slept in and I chair I sat in but the real truth is that I'm Pennsylvania German and in Pennsylvania German country we have two sayings it's too good to throw out and I'll never know when I'll need it and so as a result why uh, where we are is that uh, I grew up in a, with a group of people that didn't throw anything out that didn't need it either. And so the attics, basements, closets, garages, and sheds were filled. I think I'm kind of lucky. I was stationed in Germany for two years with the military. I was newly married and had a house full of nothing. So I had an opportunity to go to the various flea markets in Paris, flea markets in Germany, antique shows, and started to fall in love with the craftsmanship that is so associated with this stuff. And I accumulated, and I and I found that that ceramics was my my main passion. And I started to collect French ceramics. And when you're a collector, you know you always over collect. And what I had in over collected, I decided what what a wonderful thing to start a business. So my wife and I started a business. We advertised. We sold the, the extra French pottery that we have, and we also had an opportunity to replace the the pieces that we sold. So I think it's a fabulous way of life. Well, I started collecting with one blue bracelet that I paid $10 for at a flea market. Um, I was like your daughter, Sally, and I said I'm not collecting anything. My parents were huge collectors of everything, and I said, well, the antique bug didn't bite me. And then all of a sudden I bought a bracelet, and the next thing I know there's like 1,800 pieces of costume jewelry in my collection. So it can happen anybody. It's an affliction. Oh, this was only like 15 years ago. Swear to God. My parents, my mother was a doll collector. My dad was a gun collector. And, and they they just collected everything in sight. We had My mother had a collection of samovars. I mean, you name it, we collected it. I spent my youth going to antique shows. My mother would give me five bucks and say, get lost, go buy something. I mean, so I really learned 
from a very early age how to collect antiques. So I'm telling you, it's it's in your blood. One day your daughter will find that one thing that she loves and, and she's off to the races. Needs to click in. Hi, it's Danielle. I wish I had a sexy story to tell you, but the bald fact is that while I grew up in a house, uh, a German bourgeois house, uh, and all around antiques, I never had an interest in them. I married a guy who was a mega collector. Today we call him a hoarder. And, but he collected, he was a high-end hoarder. How about that? Anyway, I would follow him to antique shows, and I'd go, oh, God, I cannot do this. And finally, it occurred to me that maybe I could make some money writing about it. And honest to God, that's the truth. I grew up with, this is Nina, and I grew up with mid-century modern furniture and a home which I didn't love. My father was an artist and wanted that. They both, My mom and dad both grew up with antiques. We always went to flea markets. We always went to antique shows. And when I was old enough to do my own room, which I don't remember exactly what year that was, I started collecting antiques. So I was doing the whole reverse of theirs. And it was Paul McCobb and it was Russell Wright and it was Fiesta Wear and that sort of thing, which I loved, but I wanted my own style. So I have done it for Brazilian years, and I what I collect now. Uh, I have a tiny apartment, so I start. I have to stop collecting things. So now I collect Victorian jewelry. All right. So now it's open. You know, basically we're open for discussion. You know, I mean, I have these other questions. We can we can hit on one or two of them. You want to go ahead and start? Listen, I'll tell you what. I want to talk about the second question on the list because I think this is an intriguing question for us all to talk about. And that is, is what do you think is different in today's world that makes less of our youth interested? I don't think the youth is disinterested. I think the truth of the matter is, is they're not interested in what the old generation was. When, 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 we, when we grew up, when we grew up, we were taught there was a traditional antique market, and that's what we were told we should collect in. But now, what happens is that the new generations don't look to the past as much as they did. They're a much more me-focused generation. And as a result, when we come out there and try to say, well, what's going on in the market? If you look only at the older stuff, you don't get a true picture of what's the market. Now, you come to Randolph Street and you see all these young kids here. And so what you say to yourself is, hey, you know, what's all these young people doing here? They're buying stuff. I see them hauling away. Maybe they're not collecting it. Maybe they're decorating with it. Maybe they're reusing it. But the point of the matter is they're not buying new stuff. So I don't, I don't, think, I don't think the market's in as much jeopardy. I, I, my comment is that it doesn't matter what they're doing, they're doing it. So whether they're buying mid-century modern or they're buying Victorian or they're buying something that was contemporary 20 years ago, it's old to us, it's new to them. And uh, lots of internet, certainly all the TV shows uh, that they become obsessed with and they're redoing their homes or they're starting their homes, it's new to them. And just as I said, I didn't want what my parents had. I was happy living in it. But I want my own style, so I think that's what young people are doing. I think also that collecting has become much more me-centric. In other words, I'll buy what I like, and it really doesn't matter what other people are setting up. I think it's a whole new quote-unquote paradigm. It really is. It's a. It's just a totally new game.
I was thinking about all of this in anticipation of being here for the podcast, and I think photos are something, old photos are going to be hotly collected in the future, because what makes it different, it's those little phones that we all carry, and now we don't need to print photos and keep them out and put them on our wall, but those old photos are going to become precious, because no one's going to do them anymore. Do you know that an email is sold at auction? An email? Really? No, the question was, you know, can you sell an email or collect emails? And the answer is, you can capture them electronically, and if you capture them electronically and put them on a disk, certainly you can sell them. And the email that got sold was the message that Clinton sent to the astronaut, or the email that Clinton sent to the astronaut on one of the missions, and it it brought a reasonable sum of money. you know, it's hard to say the copyright went with it too, but I mean, but it's all, all part, all part of the rest of this. But this is the other thing too. When when I took over Warman's Antiques and Their Prices in 1981, there were 350 categories in that book. By the time we got done with it, there were close to 500. And then I put another 500 in Warman's Americana Collectibles and said that's a thousand categories. Today you walk through here and there's 30,000, 50,000 subcategories. So to track collecting today is virtually impossible because they're collectors for virtually everything. I mean, I got a, a, a column question the other day about a humidifier. And, you know, do we know humidifier collectors? I'm thinking absolutely not. But just as a curiosity, I look up this humidifier, and what is this, this round disc that looks like a spaceship? And I'm saying to myself, wow, somebody will want that. I, I personally think that the young crowds nowadays are really lazy. You know, they can sit in front of a, te- uh, a computer screen, and they can shop all over the world. They don't have to leave their house. And they can bid against other people without ever seeing who the other people are. And I think that's really kind of changed the, the, the character of the antiques market right now. And that goes for live auctions. You bet it does. Yeah. You bet it does. And it's not going to go away. It's not going to no. get worse. I, I think, but great design will always be something that people will collect. I mean, if it's interesting and designed well, there will be a market for it. Probably 30 years ago, I bought a linear tracking Sony stereo system. It played records vertically instead of horizontally. I bought it to save space. And the next year CDs came in, the thing became completely obsolete, and I put it away because I said, this thing is really unique. So sure enough, about a year ago, I looked on the internet and I said, yippee, it's worth a lot of money. So I sold it. I was very pleased. Hi-fi equipment is huge. Well, you know, I'm a collector of neat things. I like things that are just neat. And so here I am walking around Randolph Street today, and there is a Panasonic radio where the front flips down. It's a 45 record player. Now, I, 40 bucks, I never saw that before. And I'm thinking, man, if, if I hadn't sold my school, that'd be in my collection tomorrow, you know, because uh, it's just neat. But you got rid of all your records. Uh, speaking of that, I told Harry that when, the last show we were at, I bought a six-foot metal flamingo, which is a, has a prominent place in my dining room. All right. 
haven't even talked about the fact that so much of what is selling here today is altered merchandise. In other words, it started life as one thing and has been uh, tchotchke up. Reimagined. Yeah, re, re what, what is it called? Reimagined. Yes, reimagined. Okay. And that is a whole new area of collecting. Actually, you know, it, that's not that's not a new era of collecting because when I took over the Warmans in 1981, I got the old Warmans reference library, and what was the book in there called? Cash from Trash. And what they were is that's when they used to take all the wagon wheels. Remember the wagon wheels, chandeliers, and restaurants, and they would take they would take Crocs and drill holes in the bottom of them and run a pipe up there if they didn't have the pipe that came around the back and the crock. I mean, the worst I ever saw, I was in a home and I'm looking at these lamps and they're Galley lamps. And I'm thinking, Galley didn't make lamps. Well, the woman told me she went with her decorator to New York and they found these wonderful Galley bases that would make great lamp standards. So they drill hole, drilled the holes in the bottom and there they were, three, four, five thousand dollar vases and more. But you know, this, this idea of recycling things has been around a long time. But I mean, let's face it, today nobody would go out and buy a butter churn or a spinning wheel. I mean, those are things that, they're antiques, but they're probably worthless. Or things, right, right, or if there's, you know, like um, sewing machines. Sewing machines are like a dime a dozen. I mean, and so you, the bases are interesting. You can do something with that. Right. They look cool, but, you know. Right, all things, right? I'm going to quote a line I'd like for everyone to think about it. And um, this was from a past guest who, I'm actually trying to hook him up with you, Martin Codina in California. Oh, yeah. yeah. Past guest mentioned this phrase, and I thought it made so much sense. When it loses its story, it loses its value. I love it. And uh, anyone want to comment on that? Okay. When people ask me, what do we sell in the trade? I tell people we sell wonder stories and dreams. And, you know, one of the things is the questions you wanted to ask was, what keeps me interested in this business? What keeps me interested is stories, researching objects, but also the stories you hear when, when they go with them. But, you know, I have to say one thing about those of us in the antique trade. We're very creative. If an object doesn't have a story, we'll make one up. And, and, and that is, that is uh, why you have to be a little bit skeptical, we never lack for stories. That, that could be an absolutely another story that you're going to buy all your relatives at an antique market or a flea market, and you're going to hang them on the wall, and this is granddaddy and grandma and aunt and uncle and so on and so forth. So you, you can reimagine your entire life through antique pieces. I'll, I'll, I'll share a story with you. I got my family albums. And I saw my great-grandmothers, and they were battle axes. I mean, they were not nice-looking people. And I thought, I don't want my kids to inherit these people. So I went around to the flea markets, and I bought a bunch of grandmothers that I thought they would be much more appreciated being descended from and slipped them all in the album. Drives a genealogist nuts, but man, what a wonderful thing for the kids. That's a great story. But, you know, looking through the, the journals and, and watching television and listening to the auctions and so forth, the really, really, really good stuff 
there's a buyer for it. Uh, I just noticed that Leslie Heinemann, who's one of our auctioneers in Chicago, just sold an oriental piece for over $700,000. Now, there's somebody that realized this is a one-of-a-kind piece, and he bought it. And that's true in New York, too. That's always been the story. The best of its kind always sells, and sells first, and sells highest. We live in hope. <laughs> you have to be careful with this high-end theory that the high-end is always safe because, you know, one of the questions on here is that what about declining categories? And let's take let's take my favorite guy, Hopalong Cassidy. And I can tell you the high end of Hopalong Cassidy is in a terrible mess right now because the $5,000 bunk set I bought, they couldn't get 500 bucks for an auction. And that's the highest end piece in the whole hoppy collecting field. So the, the thing about it is, yes, the general rule of thumb is the high end is safe if it's speculative. There's, um, there's also a difference between a production piece and then a handcrafted piece when it comes to something like that. Oh, I don't buy that crap at all. Oh, I do. Absolutely not. This whole idea this, that if a piece is mass-produced, it's not aesthetically pleasing is crazy. There are tons of mass-produced aesthetically pleasing pieces. No, no, I know that. crappy handmade stuff, I wouldn't have to suggest where I have to Okay, but all the, all the very high-end stuff that goes when we're talking high-end, it's not commercial not commercially produced. Well, that's not that's true. Not true. That isn't true either. No, no, no. Come no, on here. Not true. I would I would dispute oh, it. Let's talk in about that. Monet, shall we? Who did everything commercially? I don't mean that. I mean like commercially produced pottery. No. No. Anything no. I no, I don't agree with you. If you want to I'm a retailer. If you want to sell, you're going to do things that are commercially good. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be value. It's not going to be. It's not going to be exclusive. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be great. You want to choose another word? Mass produced. Mass produced. Still not. Still not. Still not a good word. There's Rookwood. There's Rook. Let's say Rookwood did two types of pottery. They did their commercially produced pottery, and then they did their hand painted, one of a kind pottery. That's the type of things I'm talking about here. I'm going to say one word, Bakelite, mass produced, valuable, everybody buys it, still buys it. But only the very high end rare, like leopard pieces are the ones that bring the real big money. Well, those bring the real big money, but it's always, it brings the big money, the biggest money, but even the, the inconsequential stuff is saleable. I'm a stamp collector. The highest of the highest. I'm a stamp collector, and the rarest stamp in the world is being auctioned this month in New York. No, it was. It just sold. It was sold. What, would, what did it sell for? You know, nine million. They just between ten and twenty million. They estimated it at. And there's one of a kind. It is the ugliest stamp you've ever seen in your life. You wouldn't. Yeah, that doesn't matter. It's one of a kind. It was owned by Dupont, and from what I understand, he slept with it under his pillow. And then when he went to jail. His, his estate put this thing up for auction and it was just auctioned off. But as a collector, it was an exciting thing. This, I saw it when I was here in town uh, about 10 or 12 years ago. They had a big show here. It's an exciting thing to see. No, I'm a member of the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee. We're a group of 50 people that advise the Postmaster General on what stamps. Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson. No, no, we did a Homer Simpson stamp and, and it was a miserable failure. It was one of the. Well, that's okay. It didn't sell very well. That's why. But but let's go back to this one of a kind high end. 
it's interesting that you, you've come what I call full circle, right? And that is that when I first started studying antics in the 60s, I was at Wintertour, and that was Wintertour's philosophy. If it was handmade, it was good. If it was anything that a machine touched, it was bad. And that's what I call the purest definition of antiques. And we've learned a lot since then about aesthetics and about all the rest of this type of stuff. And I got news for you. Some of that handmade colonial furniture right now is selling for 25 cents on the dollar from 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I agree. It, the very best sells for the very best. Do we agree that everything has its cycle and its time and the time to sell it and make sure that it is the very best? You know, if particularly if it's very good, is when it is at its peak, right? I, I see it a lot in the art business. I'm an art dealer. That's my real job. And I see it a lot. I see things that go out of style. It's impossible to sell anything that's got a vase of flowers in it right now. It's very hard. But 10 years ago, I couldn't sell any nudes. Now I can. So there's always, it, things always change. There's a cycle. Paintings from the 60s, some paintings still look like they were painted in the 60s, and people don't want them. But there are paintings that are now cool. The mid-century thing, very cool. Cool. You can decorate your house with that, so it's cool now. But in, in the late 70s, early 80s, the Goddard Townsend test brought $12.2 million. That comes back on the market today, it's not going to bring $12.2 million, and it's not going to go over $12.2 million either. I'm the only non-antique expert sitting here, and I am going to play the advocate for the person that's shopping. What you need to buy is what you like. What you need to buy is what's going to fit into your collection. You should love it. It doesn't matter. We've had this conversation, Harry. You cannot buy something you think that it's going to be 54000 54 million, $10 zillion. You have to love it. And I think that's what a collector is. That's who I am. Far more interesting question, I think, and that is, that is this. The high end of the market clearly has gone up significantly, and to be a player at the high end, you need a quarter million dollars or more in tons of categories. So, so the situation is, what about the person that can only afford 25 or 50 bucks? What's left for them? Well, there's two pieces of good news. First of all, a lot of the older antiques are really losing value so fast that you can buy a lot of great Nippon that was once 150 bucks a day for 50 bucks. So if you're willing to take a risk at some of the older stuff, you've got that. At the same time, there's a lot of contemporary stuff out there that you can do it. The problem is that the ability to buy the $25 and $50 stuff is getting tougher because the auctions can't afford to sell it anymore. Dealers can't afford to sell either. I guess because talking with Ru with the Ruby Lane officials the other day on the phone, and they said to me, they said to me, what's happening is that this Ruby Lane's dealers are moving more and more to the high end higher ticket prices. And so the problem is, what are we doing with those higher numbers? Limiting the number of people we can bring in the market, not helping the number of people we can bring in. I'm going to ask a question. Do you think, because it's more money, that people find it more interesting, and therefore they're going to buy it because it's higher? I think people want it because it's rare and because it's one of a kind and they want to have their name attached to it. Now, one of the things is, I want to get back to that $9 million stamp. 
if you turn the stamp over on the back, there are marks on the back of all the owners that own that stamp. Individual stamps on the back for ownership, and that was it was a lot of pride in that. That's fascinating. I think that, you know, there's always going to be that cachet for things are the best, the rarest, but then there's always going to be a cycle, and fashion always changes. I mean, you can certainly, Nina, say that, that, that that's part of life, and that the, the style of fashion changes. When I was writing my book, I spoke with somebody in the costume jewelry industry, and he basically said a season was something like, you know, eight weeks. Am I right in that? So that's it. Eight weeks and it's done, and then you you are into something else. You're on to the next style. Yeah, I think, you know, I heard someone say one time that there's a a 20-year cycle. I don't know if I totally agree with that, but there's definitely a cycle, and, you know, I, when I was growing up as a kid in the business, it was uh, brass beds, brass and iron beds, oak dressers, pressed back chairs, round cloth foot oak tables. That was, and and now you can you can really they're still around. You can still buy them really cheaply. And now in New England, you can go in an auction and get a. a, a I was at a dealer's house the other day. Picks up this candle stand. You see anything wrong with it? New England candle stand, eight, uh, 1780 uh, federal, um, $25 at an auction. So, Harry, you brought up a thing one time. You said, How low can things go? I remember it was the Hummels we talked about. We don't need to bring that up again. But eventually, those things, it can't go lower than $25. I can't see it. It's got to start going up again. Anyone want to? Let me talk about that for a minute. This, how far down can something go? The answer is that everything will bottom out eventually, and, and, and it'll be saved. But a 200-year-old piece for that kind of money is a whole, you know, is, is, is a sad case of affairs. But here's the problem. You talk about cycle, and that I wrote a book at 88 called How to Invest in Antiques and Collectibles, and the whole book dealt with a cyclical theory. The market was cyclical, and it would come back eventually. Now I'm of the opinion that there are endangered collecting categories that are going to go away and never come back. And the one that I cite constantly is copper lusterware. Furthermore, if anybody ever buys the high-end piece of copper lusterware, they should be committed to an insane asylum because they're out of their mind for crying out loud. And the advance on that part of it, there was so much reproduction of copper luster on the market, it's really tough to tell the good from the bad. I just think there are certain there are certain categories that people aren't going to be able to relate to in the future. Shirley Temple stuff, I mean, who's going to relate to that in the future? Right. Nobody knows how right. Dion quintuplets, yeah. They're things from a, like many generations ago. They're going to have to relate to things from their own generation. You know, not ours or our parents. Yeah, who would be today? Who would be something today? I mean, you know, would it be like Justin Bieber merchandise? I don't know. <laughs> right. There will be a connection that they'll that this generation will find interesting. Let's hope the answer is Crate and Barrel, Walmart, and other types of merchandise that nobody will ever find interesting. But the, the truth of the matter is that whether we like it or not, whether, you know, you know, I, I will not buy wedding presents for people registered at Crate and Barrel or Pottery Barn. 
I mean, that's ludicrous. I mean, antiques are cheaper for starters, but the truth of the matter is that we better prepare for that stuff because that stuff is the next wave coming through the flea markets because that's what people had at home. And what do people collect? What they remember, just like you. Now, in your case, you reacted against those memories, but a lot of people collect what they remember and then they leave home, they get something else, and then they get this nostalgic feeling. What Harry just said in my mind, I'm interpreting this, is making memories with a piece. That we look at something we purchase, all of us here have something, all, probably everything we've collected. You were just talking about your bracelets. It is a memory. It's something that brings back something nostalgic to you. Your childhood, a relationship, a home, anything. And that to me is pretty much what collecting is. It is something, and I, I'm coming from a clothing area, but when I'm thinking of collecting something, my everything I look at in my home, Sally, you've been there. Everything I look at in my home means something to me may not mean something to anyone else. And I would hope that is how people collect. And that all goes back to the me thing. Uh, and, and that's the way collecting is going. I don't need to buy what a decorator tells me to buy. And I won't. I, I think personally that there is one, there is one difference, and that is artwork. People are going to be collecting beautiful paintings for as long as... Yeah, I, I'm into art myself a lot. So, no, no, I'm saying artwork is going to always be collected that does not have a connection with someone's past. Yeah, but, I, but I'm just saying we want to collect antiques because they have a connection to us, but artwork doesn't really. It's a very interesting thing, and then people often have have a real. They'll, they have no trouble spending fifty grand on lawn furniture, and yet spend fifty grand on a painting. Oh my God! And yet, twenty years from now, when you take your lawn furniture to the dump, your painting will still hopefully be worth money. Hopefully. 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 You know, last year I talked about the stratification of the market. Okay, so the people at the very, very top are buying Jeff Koons, things like that, for investment. Okay, the rest of us schlumps are buying what we like. One of the trends in the market in the last 15 years is it's gone trendy. I mean, whether we like it to admit it or not, the question is today's market's trendy. It's not, you know, when I first bought dark blue Staffordshire with American historical views on it. I was told by the collectors this has been good for 50 years. Buy it now. It's your retirement fund. It won't go out of fashion. I don't think we can safely say right now what's going to be in fashion 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I don't care whether it's artwork or a piece of furniture or anything. The truth of the matter is, and Sue, Sue knows this, the art market's as volatile as this market is. You know, I, I mean, if you'd have bought some regional Pennsylvania artists back 10 years ago when that market was hot, you'd be losing money if you sold them today. I think Martha Stewart has a big effect on what the, what's going on in the market. I remember when she said everybody must have blue and white transferware in their kitchen. You couldn't find it at a show. It went out that fast. Then try to resell it, and they lost their shirts. The next thing was you must have Majelica in your house because Majelica is hot. All the Majelica went flying off the shelves. Now it's back on the shelves for a lot less money than what they paid for. And hair, right? I mean, 
I'm the Kempair guy. Yeah, well, Kempair priced itself out of the market. It went crazy. Uh, it, it became so expensive. It's settled back down now because I'm back in the buying market. And I've been adding some pieces to my collection. But at one point, it was absolutely nuts. I couldn't touch anything. And they had these astronomical figures. And it, there was no rhyme or reason to what was going on. But it was collectible. People wanted it. So the sky was the limit. You should buy what you like is the, the gist of it. I mean, but absolutely buy what you like. I mean, it has to move you in order to buy it. But I think also... If you're, if you're in the business, you still have to you have to buy things that are saleable that you know people are going to want. If you buy what you like when you're in the business, it's much easier to sell it. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. But it's also you know it's like buying real estate. If you buy at the top of the market, your house is going to be underwater. It's it's a similar. You you have to sort of read the trends, I think, and see what's hot and it's true is it is it the time to unload it is it the time to hold i mean it's it's like anything else if you if you take this idea that you should buy what you like the truth of the matter is that there was a time when the trade influenced what people liked by what we told them to collect. But today's market isn't dominated by collectors, it's dominated by people, professional or amateur, that are decorating with this stuff, and it's trendy. And so today, if we want to sell antiques, we need a Martha Stewart or an Oprah Winfrey or some younger version of them to tell people what to buy so we have a good market. Because if they don't tell them what to buy, we don't have a market, period. You know, uh, Harry and I were talking a few years ago that in England there are certain ceramic patterns that everybody knows. There are no ceramic patterns for American China. There's none. You can't say, well, this is a truly an American pattern. Well, in England or in France, there are certain patterns that everybody knows. And say, well, I'm going to get this Wedgwood so-and-so. But in American, there is no such thing. Fiesta wear. Fiesta wear, yes. Well, I, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I, my, my kitchen cabinet is filled with Fiesta wear. It's our everyday, it's our everywhere dinner wear. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the Chinese market. You know, there's 7,000 billionaires in Beijing and more in Shanghai. Um, and so that market... Does, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, it's hard to understand. And I wanted to know if anyone wanted to talk about that. I was trying to get Phyllis here today that works with Leslie Heinemann, and she's the head of the Asian department, but she's just too burnt out, working too hard. But um, let's, let's talk about that market. Well, okay, let's deal with the Asian market two ways. Of all the countries that respect hand craftsmanship and, and, and one-of-a-kind handcrafted pieces, the Asian market is big on that. And when those pieces hit this market, they fly over the rim to Asia. There's no question about that. The thing about it is that the Asian market is now focusing on their material rather than being influenced to collect like guitars, or which they did for a while, or phonographs, which they did for a while. The Asians are now focusing on the Asian material that got taken out of China, Japan, and so forth after the war and brought over, brought over to the U.S. But the situation is, I have this comment for them. Occupied Japan stuff is great stuff, and all those Asian collectors should start buying it. That's not true in the Chinese stamp market. That is an extremely volatile market. In fact, if you look in a stamp catalog, most of the prices are in italics. 
because there is no solid price for these pieces. That's how volatile it is. A stamp could be worth $3,000, $3,000, dollars one day and $20 the next day. That's just how volatile it is. I think that in Asia they want their own things. Like Harry said, a lot of these things left the country after World War II. I mean, you see it with paintings too. Things go back to their country of origin, their state of origin, where, wherever they came from. That's what people want to collect. When I was uh, when I was working out in California, there was this gentleman that lived there in Oakland. He'd fly to China. He was Chinese. Now you can only buy any. You can't buy anything pre 19 uh, World War II. You know, and you have to go through the communist government. There's a big deal to get stuff out of there. So he's buying stuff post 1940s, bringing it to auction and tripling his money. People were buying it there and bringing it back there. So and he did this trip after trip after trip. Question is: Are these Asian buyers collecting it? Or are they speculating in it? And at the high end of the market today, almost everywhere, almost all those record prices are being paid by speculators, not collectors. Well, you know, right now we're talking about the Chinese influence in the market. Five years ago, we talked about the Russian money and the oil money coming into the market. This is the volatility that the American market's involved in right now, and I don't see this ending for decades. Our Pacific Asia show in New York, it's one of the really spectacular shows. It's always well attended, and you see some jade there that, that you only dream about, absolutely beautiful color stuff. And the people that buy it really know what the heck they're buying. My issue is the education of the public and also the education of the dealers to the public and that that's how they're going to sell because people want to be taught, they want to learn and people aren't reading like they used to and so if people are coming into this business just to buy because they want to decorate their house, they're not that interested necessarily in learning but if they're coming in it to be a collector and to make money, they need to be a lot more educated. And I'm not sure that they're doing that unless they see it, you know, a celebrity collector. And I always love that in some of these magazines where you see like the passionate collector, some famous person and what they collect. I think those are the kinds of stories that people like because it educates them basically on a history of a collection. Also, if we're going to be collectors, what's it worth? And I mean, even if you find out it's not worth as much, if you keep it together, these are things people don't really understand. You know, people always ask me, what do I sell in this business? And I sell, tell people I sell information because that's what I've devoted my whole, I don't sell the objects. But when people say to me, what is the one thing, what, what is the one piece of advice you have, whether it's going to be someone wants to collect or become a dealer, my advice is take a year, two years, and learn the business. Study it. Go to flea markets. Go to, go to auctions. Go around. See what you can learn. Get the books. Read about it. Know what you're buying. Know what you're doing. The biggest problem in this trade is caveat emptor, the thing that rules how we sell. Let the buyer beware. That's the excuse everybody hides behind in this business for not knowing what the heck they should know. Uh, 
I wrote a question and answer column for the antique trader several years, and they asked me, where do I get my information? How do I get my prices? By going to shows, by reading, by studying. That's how you learn all this stuff. Uh, as a lover of ceramics, I've become a, a plate flipper. I rarely can sit down in a restaurant without turning the plate over to see what the mark on the bottom is, and that's sort of a bad habit. It's kind of embarrassing at times, especially when you're out with people you don't know. You wouldn't buy a car without checking it out. You wouldn't buy a washing machine without checking it out. Know what you're doing when you're buying a collectible or antique. In my opinion, when you go to Randall Street Market or you're going to anything similar, this is how you educate yourself. You talk to the vendors, you talk to the dealers, you talk to the experts that are there, and you educate yourself, just like you educate yourself for anything else. And to me, that's primary. And you can it's always gut. It's gut reaction to what you're going to buy. I mean, we all know that. But you, you need to educate yourself if you're going to become a collector, without question. I do get a lot of um, emails because I do this show from people that always ask me, um, first of all, I'm a, I'm a generalist, what you call a generalist, which means I try to know everything about a lot of categories. Um, and they say, well, how do you learn? And, you know, you guys are coming up with a lot of the same answers I tell them. Go to auctions. Find what makes you happy, what you really have an interest in, um, and then find everything about, uh, go to museums, uh, get books, um, learn whatever it is inside out. A really a thing that you can do a lot of the time is you can go to an auction, watch someone buy something that you like, and go up to them and start a conversation. Most people are friendly enough to tell you a little history. In summary, here's the name of the game. All of us sitting around here know one basic fact. Knowledge in this trade is cumulative. All of us learn every day. Everything we do is another learning experience added on to what we've already learned in the trade. And the key is if you want to survive in this trade, you never stop learning. And I think that's why we're all sitting here sharing with, first of all, what we know, but also saying to you that what we know now is not going to be what we know a year from now because we will have learned a lot more in the interim. We're getting near the end, and I want to I want to uh, end this really fun by asking each person if they know of a, the, the best find that they've ever heard of um, story. You know, try to keep it in a minute or so if you can, but kind of the best find that you heard about. I've got one that I'm going to talk about that's really interesting. I was doing an appraisal clinic in Austin. I didn't walk the person with a table that supposedly Mark Twain wrote his his uh, books on. It came from the Twain House in Elmira, New York. And I said to them, well, this is a mass-produced table. How can I tell? And they said, well, see, see this uh, stereoptigon slide of the table with all those things on the mantle in the back? I said, yep. They opened the suitcase and said, here are the three items on the mantle, too. I think the, the most spectacular thing I ever bought was, I'm a big Kemper collector, as I mentioned before, and I bought a plaque at auction for 1850 bucks. I hate to admit it, but I saw the mate at an antique show in Chicago for $150. And I asked the guy, I said, do you know what this is? He says, absolutely, it's Dutch. I said, I think it's French. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. It's Dutch. So I said, what's the price? He said, $100. I said, will you take 75 for it? And he said, of course I'll take 75 and I couldn't keep a straight face. I handed the checkbook to my wife, and I walked away and said, you take care of it. I can't handle it. <laughs> well, 
I'd say probably twice a year as an art dealer I have people that find valuable paintings in the garbage can but but I would have to say the craziest story I ever heard and it was a major New York auction house and it was a couple of very elderly ladies and the auction house came over and took all the supposedly good stuff away and then they sent an intern back for some other stuff and there was a small white vase that was perched on top of a very old television. In fact, it was a television that the top wasn't even flat. It was sort of a convex thing on top of it. And so this vase is perched precariously. And the intern thought, that's interesting. I think I'll take that back with me. Well, it turned out that little white vase that looked like a bunch of nothing sold for almost a million dollars. And nobody apparently noticed it or recognized it at first. Is anything important? Well, this isn't going to be a story about uh, a a terrific uh, economic find, but I go back to my husband, the mega collector who was known, who went to an antique uh, market with friends, and they came back and reported that he was jumping up and down. He was so excited. He was saying, oh, my God, I never thought I'd see one in my life. And they all looked to see what it was. It was a Chinese jester's rattle. Okay, the moral of that story is no matter what you seek at some point in your life it will appear in front of you all right i have a great story i've been waiting to tell this one all right this happened on the east coast and it was uh, two brothers inherited their father's house now father had a very very valuable painting and i can't remember the name but it was one of the big artists in, in back east um, that sell for a couple million dollars. It was that good. So it was over the couch and father dies and they inherited the house and they inherited the painting. <clears throat> so they decided, one of the brothers said, well I want to keep the house and let's sell the painting. So they said, okay. So the other brother said, look, why don't you get like a mortgage full for, you know, give me the half of the house worth and when we sell the vase, you know, I need the money now. When we sell, I mean, when we sell the painting, I'll give you the money back. And he said, okay. So he went to the bank, and it was no problem. He got the money, gave his brother the money. And then uh, a few months later, they went down to Christie's in New York, brought their painting, and Christie says, I'm sorry, this is a fake. This is a painting's not worth anything. So time goes by, and the brother says, uh, well, what are we going to do about the money? You owe me this money, you know, the, ha- uh, the money I gave you for the house. So the other brother said, well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you, you know, it's just going to take a while. So two or three years go by, and the brother that bought the house decided to do some renovation. And when he pulled out a panel from the, behind the couch, there was the original painting. He sold it for $2 million. Oh, my God. That is and, and, and never told his brother. And, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him for it. His brother was never going to pay him back. So anyway, I thought that was kind of a... I thought that was kind of a great way to end that this. Is, All right. That's poetic justice. All right, so thank you, everyone. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure. And hopefully we'll be back here next year and we'll think of some new topics. All right. Thank you, everybody.